Today on the Ticker Tapes, we talk to Claire Barouche, whose life changed in ways she couldn't have imagined after an afternoon at the cinema. What always sticks with me now is this chap who was called Mr Baker, Chris Baker. He came in and I had no recollection of having seen him a couple of days prior. And he came up to me and he grabbed my hand and he said, uh, good morning, Claire. He said, I'm the cardiologist that was in charge uh, when you arrived with us on Wednesday afternoon. And he said, I've got some good news and bad news. So he said, the good news is I'm stood here having this conversation with you. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Ruth Huntman. And on the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. In this episode, Claire, now 54, and living with heart failure, tells me about overcoming depression and feelings of guilt after suffering a heart attack at just 45. So Claire, thank thank you for talking to me today and joining Ticker Tapes. Can you just briefly describe how your health was before your heart attack? I I was 45 when I had my heart attack and prior to that um, I've been diabetic, a type 1 diabetic uh, since 1980. So 40 years, um, it was probably 30, 34 years at the time of the heart attack. And um, being a diabetic, I'd always kind of uh, looked after myself really, really well, eaten a good Mediterranean diet, exercised and done all the things that I'm supposed to do to look after the diabetes side of things. I was also a mother of two children, grown up children, but nonetheless a mother of two children and working full time. So it was a hectic life. And it was nine years ago, um, when you were 45, that an event happened that changed your life. Can you explain in your own words what happened? It was a Sunday afternoon and we'd gone out to our local cinema, uh, myself, uh, my son and um, my husband. And they, like I say, they they dabble in the fast food stuff. But I personally got a a sandwich before we went because I I don't like all the kind of stuff that they throw at you at the cinema so I'd taken a sandwich to live long because it was around just after lunchtime so it was you know I had to had to have something because my diabetes and um, it was fine we went in saw the film had our nibbles all the rest of it and when we went to come out I just suddenly felt quite nauseous and I just said to the husband I don't know I reckon that sandwich was a bit dodgy or I've picked up a bug or something I just wanted to get home so we did we took ourselves home and I just literally took myself straight off to bed the husband said, did you want anything to eat? And I said, no. So I was just drinking at that point. Didn't really think much more of it until probably about one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. And everything just seemed to change then. I just woke up feeling very confused, very hot, very clammy, almost like I was having a panic attack. I was hot, I was clammy, and it was coming over in me in like waves. And I just felt so nauseous, so sick, but I couldn't actually be sick. I had no pain at this point in my arms or my chest or anywhere, just this nauseous feeling. So I went to the bathroom, sat there, you know, kept thinking, God, if I could just be sick, I'd feel better. So I suppose for probably about four hours, I was back and forth to the the bathroom and my bed, but I couldn't sleep. I was just sat on the edge of the bed, just feeling, I just don't know how to describe it, but I just knew something wasn't right. But like I say, I still convinced myself at this point in time, it was nothing more than a bug or, you know, um, food poisoning. Do you think at the back of your mind you thought there was something serious, but you were in denial? Or 
did you genuinely think it was just a dodgy sandwich? No, I knew there was I knew there was something, you know, wrong. I mean, at first I thought it was just kind of like, um, you know, sometimes you get a bit of a headache and feel a bit nauseous and sure. you kind of brush it off and you fall asleep. But I knew there was definitely something, you know, like I say, because I felt the nausea was um, extreme. So, yeah, I, I knew that. But like I say, I'm not I'm not the type that ever kind of basically a terrible thing to say, but I have to be on my deathbed before I will call or go to a doctor's. <laughs> Little did I know. Um, and uh, so, again, like I say, I sat on the edge of the bed and then eventually it seemed to ease a little bit. So I thought, right, I'm going to try and lie down and get some sleep. And I did. That morning I woke up and I still felt nauseous, but nothing more than that. The the severe kind of extreme feelings that I would had in the night had all seemed to have subsided. So I was just led in bed and I led in bed for that day and the Tuesday. And then on the Wednesday morning, um, my husband was off at this point because he'd taken two weeks uh, leave. He said to me, this isn't good because he was really worried that I'd been drinking, but I wasn't eating at this point in time. And so he was worrying about the effects it might have had on the diabetes. So he decided to try and call the doctor. Well, the doctor couldn't see me. There was no appointments. They suggested going to a walk-in centre. I was still see, feeling so weak and, and, and nauseous. I thought there's no way I can get to the walk-in centre. So um, he decided he'd call paramedics just to get me checked out. And so that was it. He called the paramedics. And just to be clear, Claire, you'd had no symptoms at all before this night, this afternoon at the cinema? No, not well. As this, yeah, I hadn't had any symptoms, but now in hindsight, looking back, mm-hmm. as I've said many a time, in hindsight now looking back, I had for probably two or three months been having what I thought was indigestion, right. especially when I was late for work and I was perhaps rushing to the bus stop or rushing to the tube. I'd get a bit of indigestion, but as soon as I sat down, it would ease. And so again, I never thought anything more of it because, I, I like I say, I just kind of tend to not brush things off, but I don't really... Um, you know, I don't like, as I said, to keep going to the doctors all the time with every little pain and niggle. So and then the paramedic or the first responder arrived in his little kind of um, cars, cars that they have. He came up and first kind of obs that he did. My BP was absolutely fine. My blood sugars were bang on where they should be. My temperature was bang on where it should be. Everything seemed absolutely fine. And so he said to my husband at the time, um, I think it is just a stomach bug, um, you know, a couple more days in bed and she should be fine. So I'd had been taking paracetamol and we were almost out. So my husband said, well, I'll go off down to the corner shop, which is literally three minutes to the end of our road, get some more paracetamol. And the paramedic said, well, I'll stay here whilst, whilst you do that. I'll stay here with her. Anyway, whilst my husband was down at the corner shop, the ambulance arrived and a lovely lady and paramedic came up and um, the female paramedic looked at me. She said, you look very grey, very kind of pasty and very clammy still. She said, now that we're here in attendance, she said, as an ambulance crew, um, there's a couple more observations that we have to carry out. She said, "Um, one of them's an ECG. She said, do you mind? And I said, no, absolutely not. Of course not. And at this point, I was feeling... I guess I was feeling slightly more relaxed and at ease because I knew that we had medical people around me. Um, so I felt like people were in charge. And so I just sat there having a bit of banter with um, the female paramedic. And she started the ECG machine and things were fine for the first kind of couple of, uh, couple of seconds. And then the next thing is she looked up at me kind of like somebody would look up over the top of their glasses with her head bowed down. She looked up at me and she said, and how are you feeling right now? And I said, 
I'm feeling okay. And then the next thing I hear her saying is she's relaying to the two gentlemen paramedics who are waiting in the landing outside the bedroom, guys, can you call in a code code blue? Wow. Well, I've heard of code blue, but I didn't really, it wasn't relating code blue and blue lights and gosh, I was in trouble. It didn't really relate. It kind of, it was there. I was listening, but it wasn't, it didn't seem relative that it was for me. And uh, she looked at me and she said, I'm really sorry to tell you, she said, but you're having having a, a bad heart attack. She said, and it looks like your heart's probably been in um, in this situation since Sunday when I first started to feeling ill, feeling ill. So um, at that, um, I sleep, um, <laughs> I sleep with nothing on. So at that point, I just panicked and thought, oh, God, if they've got to take me in, I better get some pajamas on. So I went to I went to jump out of bed at this point. And she looked at me and she said, what on the earth are you doing? She said, stay in bed, lie there, you're not to move. And so I thought, oh, gosh. <laughs> Did you think, wow, this is serious now? No, not at all. No, absolutely. I still thought it was, um, it, it, I, it still it still wasn't sinking in. I still thought, no, nah, no, they've got this wrong. They've got this wrong. You know, this this can't be right. I'm feeling, I'm feeling better than I did. It, it, they can't be right. But like I say, I let, let, let them do what they had to do. Um, they got me onto a stretcher. They got me downstairs into the back of the ambulance. At this point, the husband was coming back up the road. And um, he'd gone off to the corner shop thinking it was no more than a bug with getting the paracetamol. And he came back to see them wheeling me into the back of the ambulance. Um, and they explained to him that your wife, we're going to have to take her in. She's having a heart attack. Um, he literally threw the paracetamol in through the front door and shut the door behind him and jumped in the back of the ambulance. And I was still set up in the back of the ambulance because I didn't want to lie down. I was sat up in the back of the ambulance with the cannula in, having morphine and all these drugs pumped into me at this point. And I remember lying um, or, or sitting like, uh, led up on the stretcher, looking at my husband saying, God, you know, they're going to think I'm a fraud. When I get there, they're going to just take me off the stretcher and take me into A&E and tell me to go home. That's and a I... typical reaction, isn't it? Especially yeah. from a woman, yeah. I'm, I'm making a fuss. Yeah, and I was, still, I was still thinking this. Anyway, we went to the Hammersmith Hospital because that's where they've got an acute heart centre. So we went to the Hammersmith Hospital. And at this point, like I say, when we were on the stretcher, I was still thinking, nah, you know, there's, I'm just going to be told to go home and get on with it. And it was only... The penny only really dropped when I was whisked off the ambulance and I suddenly saw this crowd of um, people masked up with the hats and their gowns and everything on waiting to whisk me in. And I was taken in through these two double doors um, straight into what's a cath lab, which is literally like a theatre, all these lights, stretchers, screens, just mass of people in, um, you know, their green suits. And I hadn't even had a say, chance to say goodbye to my husband. He'd been kept back with the ambulance crew. And that was it. I was on the stretcher and everything that needed to be done was being done. Nobody introduced themselves to me. Um, I had one of the uh, lovely nurse staff who was at the top of the, um, the, the, the table that I was then being li uh, was lying on. And she was holding my hand and she said, right, she said, just, just, she said, just trust. She said, you're in the best hands. She said, we're going to do everything we can to take care of you. And at this point, the morphine, they were pumping with morphine. It was really starting to kick in. And so I really didn't know what was going on. Although I could see these screens and I could see people behind a glass window in another room and all these people doing stuff around me. Um, I still really wasn't that aware of, of, of what was going on. But I knew I knew I was in big trouble at this point. 
It all sounds so dramatic, Claire. Did yeah. you, what, were you scared at that point? I was and I wasn't um, because in some ways I thought, well, I'm in the place where I need to be. And, you know, these these are medical people. They obviously know what they're doing. So although I was scared within myself, I, uh, you know, I still at this point thought that it was probably going to be an easy fix. It was all kind of a fog, a bit of a fog because of the medication that I was on. Sure. And at some point I must have just kind of gone completely with the amount of morphine and everything that they were giving me. And I can't remember much else until um, a couple of days later, waking up in the ICU department wired to all these machines, one of which was what's known as a bloom pump. And the bloom pump is what they'd inserted um, when I'd first come into the cath lab. All of my arteries were blocked. I had one one artery that was 99%. The others were all completely blocked, completely blocked. Um, The way it was described to me was... um, you know, most people's heart flow to their heart is a bit like Niagara Falls. Mine was a bit like a dripping tap. That's how severe it, it was. Basically, uh, what what always sticks with me now is this chap who was called uh, Mr. Baker, Chris Baker. He came in and um, I had no recollection of having seen him a couple of days prior. But he was the chap that was in charge of the theatre on the day when I'd arrived at hospital. And he came up to me and he grabbed my hand and he said, um, he said, uh, good morning, Claire. He said, do you know who I am? And I looked at him, I said, I've absolutely no idea. And he said, well, I'm um, Chris. He said, Mr. Baker. He said, I'm the cardiologist that was in charge uh, when you arrived with us on Wednesday afternoon. And he said, I've got some good news and bad news. So he said, which would you like? I said, well, it doesn't really matter. Um, he said, the good news is I'm stood here having this conversation with you. Um, mm. And the bad news, he said, is uh, your heart's in a, a pretty poor way and you're going to need need um, a heart bypass. So um, that was, I think, um, well, that was that was obviously difficult to hear. Um, Had your heart been damaged by the heart attack? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Although, like I say, at this point, um, nobody knew the kind of severity because everything had happened so quick in the cath lab. You know, they just do whatever they can in the interim to try and get you in a stable position so that then they can have that time, that window of time to decide what best action to take. Um, And so originally they decided to take me back down to the cath lab and put in two stents, which they did. And that's when, like I say, and then I went back up and had 10 days, 10 further days in hospital to recover before they'd send me home. So that was it. I went home. I didn't have any cardio rehab at this point. I just went home and was left to kind of um, recover and I suppose acknowledge what had happened and try and get my mind around it all. And then it was eventually in the October of that year, I was called back in for the triple heart bypass. Wow. So essentially, in the space of three months, you'd gone from thinking you'd had a stomach bug from a yeah. dodgy sandwich yeah. to being dropped the bombshell that you would have to have a, a triple heart bypass. Was that psychologically, how difficult was that for you to, to come to terms with? It's difficult. Um, it is really difficult and it was really hard. But in some ways, I always try to be a positive person. And so the positive edge on that was that there was hope that they could still do something you know I was still thinking well okay it means major surgery and it's going to be a a huge operation to try and have to get over 
I was kind of um, thinking, well, yeah, things can be fixed, I think, at this point. I was still very, very positive because I thought, yeah, things, you know, there's still hope things can be fixed. And I suppose also in my naivety, I wasn't that aware of, you know, people think of a heart attack and they think, oh, it's a heart attack. And they, I, I think I was of the assumption that a heart attack is the same for everybody, uh, you know, and it's something that you have a heart attack, you go into hospital, you come out and everything's hunky-dory and off you go. Unless it's a fatal heart attack, obviously, when people have died. So, But it's only now from having the heart attack and heart failure that I've learned so much more, which is why I'm so keen now to, to get that awareness out there to other people. Absolutely. And and tell me about briefly about the triple heart bypass. You you made a good recovery from that? I, I did do initially, yes. Like I say, they didn't do what they wanted to do during the actual bypass because the the they wanted to do um they wanted to go in and the actual arteries that they were hoping to do a bypass to um and do more more things to, they couldn't actually work on because um not only were my arteries blocked, but a few of them were also what they call calcified, which means that they've gone brittle. Wow. So um, so they had to re, um, rethink about what they were going to do. Instead of just bypassing these three arteries, they had to come up with what's known as a Y-graft. And that basically is um, a, a graft of arteries that comes one from the back, one's from the front, and one's from the left-hand side. And they all join together to make like a... a uh, like uh, like a Y shape around the, the the heart, and so it was a Y graft is what is um, what they did. Um, and yes, I initially I came out. Um, that was the October. I stayed at home and just uh, I was seeing consultants and doctors every week and having bloods done and had nurses calling in. But it wasn't until the February of 2013 when I was put into what they call cardio rehab. I felt very safe because I had all these medical people around me, um, mm. but I was able to start testing out my cardiovascular system very kind of lightly to begin with, just doing exercises like little step exercises, just just kind of warm up exercises that what people would do before running and things like that. And so to begin with, I felt I felt safe and things felt good. And for the first five weeks, things felt like they were improving. Each week I'd go and I'd feel I could do that, push myself that little bit further, do a little bit longer on the on the treadmill walking or on the steps or on the, the bike, the exercise bike. And so you were hopeful, Claire, that your life would slowly return to the way it was before. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Four weeks were fine. On the fifth week, something just didn't feel right again. And I just felt so tired, so lethargic. I was getting really, really breathless, more breathless than I had done in previous weeks, trying to do the same, going, pushing myself to the same kind of limits. And I just I just didn't feel right. I was feeling giddy. I was feeling faint. I just I just didn't feel right. I, d I went to the cardio rehab on the sixth week, but not to actually, I had no in, in, intention of joining in. I was just going because that's where the contact was of a um, heart failure nurse and um, people that I could be in touch with and explain what was going on. And so to begin with, I had a chat with them and they said, oh no, you know, it's just like when you die, you've reached a bit of a plateau, it'll all come back, don't worry, just keep going. But because I'd kind of, I suppose, been so... I don't know, flippant in the initial beginning when I first started feeling ill and not contacted anybody. I was, uh, I suppose I was in a slightly different mindset now. And I thought, no, 
I'm not going to listen to anybody else. I'm listening to my body and my body's telling me something's not right. So I mm. insisted on wanting to see the uh, cardiologist. So um, I did. I got an appointment. I think it was a couple of weeks later to go and see uh, Mr. Baker. And so I explained to him what was going on and he decided, well, the best thing was to start doing a whole load of tests just to make sure that things were all running appropriately and as they thought they should be. And it was probably, it was the November of that year, 2013, when I finally got an appointment to go back and see uh, Chris Baker to discuss everything, all the results from all the tests that they'd, they found. And at that point in time, like I say, I was still hopeful. But I, I went into the office and I could just tell there was not a tension in the air, but I could just tell things weren't that things weren't good. He was shuffling through the papers and kind of looking at me. And I'd always said from the offset when I'd met Mr. Baker on that morning when he'd said, do you want the good news or the bad news? I'd said to him then, as he was going to be my ongoing consultant, that I'm a very open minded person and that I prefer to know the truth and the whole truth. I said, you know, good or bad, I need to know. I said, I'm one of those people that has to know. I said, if I don't know, uh, you know, that's more stressful to me. I'd rather know and then be able to try and deal with it. And um, so he just looked at me and he said straight away, he said, well, he said, I'm really sorry to tell you. He said, despite the stents and despite the heart surgery um, and we thought you'd be in a better place. He said, you have third stage heart failure. Well, all I could think at the time was, are you kidding me? You know, I've been through all the heart attack and the stenting and the surgery and the surgery is just absolutely horrendous to get over. It really, really is. Getting over heart surgery, I've I've never known anything like it. And I just sat there and at first I just thought, God, how can this be? You know, I've been through all this and you're telling me that I'm now in heart failure. That's irreversible. But at the time, again, I was so naive. I, I, I didn't know. You'd like to say it's all these things I now know in hindsight. But I, I, I didn't know. I was, I had no idea, and I hate. I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that now. But I had no idea what heart failure was or what the effects of it were. I had no idea what third stage heart failure was, and the implications. I just, I just had no idea. I just knew that heart failure didn't sound good, and so obviously it wasn't, it wasn't a good situation. And so at that point, um, he, the, the consultant, Mr. Baker, started to explain to me exactly what heart failure is. Um, obviously, in the very kind of a short kind of synopsis of, of, of what heart failure is like. And, and can you explain in what ways has that changed your, your life? So in the space of about 18 months, my life was changed completely. Yeah. And it's not just the physical, it's the mental side as well. Sure. And what you come to understand is it's it's not just me, the patient. It affects all of my family and all of my friends. And it, it's just like uh, dominoes, a, a pile of dominoes being flicked. You know, it just has this effect where so many people are just brought into the whole kind of situation and have to deal with it as well. Um, like I say, I went from being a full-time working mum running the house to being able to do literally nothing and that sounds extreme but that that was that was the case that's how it was that's the reality in the first certainly in the first few years now I'm more stable and I can explain that later but in the first few years it's just it's literally just a life of going in and out to hospitals and clinics every kind of week or every other week having 
uh, tablets given to you, then a different tablet, and then different dosages, uh, doses. But during that time, I couldn't get up my flight of stairs. I've got a, uh, we live in a terraced house with 13, 13 stairs up to our bathroom and bedroom. I couldn't, I could no longer climb the stairs. So we had to have a stair lift, stair lift installed. I had to get a, a mobility scooter in which to be able to go out to the park with my husband or to go anywhere because I couldn't, I, I just couldn't walk anywhere at the, at the beginning. The simple thing of just getting out of bed and dressing myself and I was breathless. You know, I needed somebody to help me bend down to put socks and shoes on, um, to help me put my bra on, help me take a shower. All the things that you just take for granted, all these things suddenly were really, really difficult for me. I become so tired and so breathless and I just didn't have the energy. Was one of the hardest things having to be dependent on other people as well? Oh, God, absolutely. Because with that comes all the mental side of things, of the yeah. guilt and the burden. You feel such a burden. I used, I, I started thinking, oh, my God, you know, um, as I say, I'm always a very, I try to be a very positive person. But at my lowest point, I kept thinking, well, what's the point? You know, what's my worth? I've got no worth. I can't work. I can't run the family. I can't do anything. I can't even go out for a walk in my, with my husband along a beach, you know. And I thought you know, what, what's the point? And I don't want to be here and dragging my family down as well, you know, and I just didn't want to put them through that, you know, because they're all, they're all well, they're, they're all fit and healthy. And, you know, why, why should their lives um, be changed? Because I'm no longer able to just kind of do lots of those things, you know, sure. uh, and I, I felt so guilty. I've, um, and I still do to this day, like I say, because my husband who works a very stressful full-time job, he now does um, all the shopping of the weekend. He does most of the cooking every night when he gets in from work. And he does um, cooking at the weekend. He does all the washing. And, you know, it's just, it's all been put on him, basically. I do, now I'm slightly more stable. I do try to do the little bits that I can help, to help. But like I say, most days, that's not very much. It's probably things like empty the dishwasher or load the dishwasher. But, you know, hoovering, I can't hoover things like that, you know, I just get so breathless, I just, I just can't do it. So yeah, I, I feel useless, especially on the days when, um, not so much now with the COVID, because my, hus my husband and son have been working a lot from home, but when they're not here, and they're both at work, I'm here in the house all day on my own. And so, you know, you do get, you do get those times when no matter how positive and hopeful you try to be, you have those dark days when you start spinning into that little dark spiral. And, um, you know, I, I sit here some days and I do have a good cry, but then I know that that's just a day and hopefully it's just a day and I know that the next day will be better again. I'll, I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be fine. I'll have another good day. So, yeah. yeah. And also the other thing is, like I say, I've got a disabled badge. I've got a mobility car, all things that I feel guilty for having, but things that I need. And, and and so, um, but the amount of times that I've pulled up in a Tesco's car park, well, back when things were better and I wasn't so, um, like I say, now I couldn't do that. But when things were slightly better and things were slightly more stable, I, you know, would try and go to Tesco's and just pick up a few bits. I wouldn't do a main shop, but if we needed bread and milk, I'd just go and just go and get little bits like that. But I'd pull up and I'd park in a Tesco's disabled bay. Or I'd go to my doctor's surgery and park in a disabled bay and display a disabled ticket. And I get out of the car and I've had things shouted at me. The abuse I've had shouted at me, like you effing fraud and, you know, what's your disability then? And, and you just cannot believe 
the barrage of kind of insults that you get thrown at you because you look healthy and that's that, how, that's horrific it's and it's it's really hard to deal with really yeah. really hard to deal with because you 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 feel like you have to explain to these people what's going on in order to justify parking in a disabled space you know and I did try to do this once when I was outside the doctors it was an old chap funny enough as well an old chap who was really cross with me because I parked in this disabled space and got out of my car and he looked at me and he he said he said disabled he said what he said he said is that your disabled badge and I thought well it's none of your bloody business I said yes it is and he um you know he said to me he said well what's what, what's the problem with you he said you look perfectly well to me and I said well I said I've had a heart, heart attack and I'm in heart failure and the end because I was trying to explain to him he said oh well I hope you bloody well drop down dead with it and that was the no. worst honestly I'd gone into my doctors at this point and I was just in floods of tears so much so that they actually took me into a back room gave me some water and a cup of coffee and you know to calm me down but that's I've got used to it now I've got used to it now and I'm I've toughened up you know and I just ignore people when they want to make comments like that. Is it fair to say Claire that you lost friends or or people that you thought were Definitely. friends? Because, no. Yeah yeah no I have definitely I used to have a good group of friends and we all used to go out on a, a regular basis we'd meet for drinks and a, a meal of an evening um there were a group of six of us we'd been friends because both of our children went to school together and so um on a monthly basis we'd always we we meet up and go out for drinks and we perhaps go to a couple different couple of different pubs for a drink before we went to eat at somewhere and I guess that happened that carried on happening I obviously after my recovery and when I was back feeling I, I got over the main operation and everything like that they they then said yes we must have a get-together they'd still been having the get-togethers but they said yes Claire you must come along and so I, I you know I said okay that'll be great but I think it was only after the second time of going out for that that they realized I suppose inconvenience is the only way to put it because I guess I was an inconvenience because we had to think where can we park because obviously I can't walk that far so I needed to know that there was somewhere to park relatively close to where we were going to eat or drink then I needed to know that there was access to disabled toilets um, and despite people thinking that that's part of the law now that every every venue you go to has to have access to disabled toilets you'd be surprised the amount of places that still don't have access for disabled people and so it's it's all the little things like that and then just the burden of having to kind of have the mobility scooter or a wheelchair in the back of the car so that I could be pushed to wherever it needs be and I suppose over time it just became easier to not invite me and so I felt that more and more I was being invited less and less but yeah it certainly certainly um, shows you who your true friends are. Absolutely so I mean the great positive that has come out of this I guess is that you you sought the sort of company of other people who were in your same position and understood and came to find yourself involved with a Facebook group called Bell's Hearties. So can you explain that journey? Because that's a lovely part of your journey. Yeah, absolutely. It was my son, actually, who realised that I was spending more and more time at home. And he is quite a sensitive young lad. And he he realised that I was kind of, my moods were sliding a little bit and I think a lot of that he thought was because I'm spending so much time on my own so he said to me mum he said why don't you get a Facebook account and he said you said you can find lots of self-help groups and all sorts on there mum he said there's loads of groups and communities you can join and so I started kind of looking at different bits and pieces and I put in heart groups 
heart support groups. And um, one came up in particular, which was the British Hearties, Worldwide Hearties, which was run by a gentleman called Jeff, Jeff Sykes. And so I thought, well, what's the harm? So I joined that and um, it was it was good. It was nice. I felt, um, yeah, I could talk to other people that had been through a similar experience to myself. And I got very friendly with a couple of lovely ladies that were on that group. This was a mixed group for men and ladies. Um, but obviously I interacted more with the ladies and there were a couple of other ladies, Elaine and Liz, who were on that group. And Elaine in particular, who was um, in third stage heart failure and had been through very similar circumstances to myself, she decided that the way that ladies needed to talk about this experience they'd been through was very different to the way men wanted to deal with it and talk about it. And so she realised that there was no female-only heart groups and decided that she'd set up her own female-only heart group. And so that's what she did. And it was called, as you said, Bell's Hearties. So I joined and Liz joined. And I suppose as more ladies started to join, Elaine needed help running the admin. And so she asked Liz and I if we'd go on board and help run. And at the time, I had no idea what I was getting into because, like I say, I had no idea about any of it. <laughs> That's quite impressive for a Facebook virgin, Claire. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but so that was it. And before I knew where I was, I don't know. It was just, I just felt it, it was just absolutely fantastic. To begin with, it was just fantastic to be in a place where I could talk to other people that truly understood what I was feeling like. You know, it, it's not just saying something to somebody and there's somebody saying, oh, yeah, I know, I know. I, I genuinely knew that they understood what I was going through and I understood and knew exactly what they were going through. So after a while of being on the group and just kind of dabbling in and out, I guess I started not pushing myself to the forefront, but I I realised that sometimes all people need, there's a lot of ladies actually out there who deal with this on their own because their partners haven't been able to cope with their situation they've been left in and have gone off and left them or ladies that were on their own anyway. So, you know, so there's lots of different um, circumstances out there. But I realised a lot of these ladies, all they needed sometime was just that connection of somebody to say, good morning, ladies, how are you this morning? And something as simple as that could brighten and make a difference to somebody's day. And then, you know, I'd start doing an evening question that they'd answer and then a good night post. And so this became a regular, a regular thing. And before I knew what I was kind of into, really, um, I'd, well, I had, I'd taken over Liz's, um, Elaine's group, bless her. But Elaine is, she's, she's wonderful because, like I say, everybody now thinks that it's my group and I run the group. But I, I suppose in some respect, I do run the group from that aspect, but it's not my group. It's Elaine's group. I'm not only helping other people, but I'm also, I'm helping myself because I'm not able to wallow and think of my own kind of downfalls so much because I'm there and I love just being able to help other people and give them some of the advice. Absolutely. And humour is a big thing that you've introduced. We, we yeah. must mention the almost daily postings of of pictures of Tom Hardy, which bring oh, yeah, the group yeah. a lot of delight. They bring you a lot of delight, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> you and your Tom Hardy fetish. Don't, don't, don't put that one on us, Ruth. That's all you. <laughs> but Busted. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, of course we do. You know, we... 
we post nice pictures of hunky hot men sometimes you know builders and we say who wants some building work done and post a nice picture of a builder and <laughs> yeah you know we're, we're ladies you know and just because we've had a heart attack it doesn't mean to say that we're mentally dead you know we've still got feelings you know we still you know we still um we still want to have a fun and have a laugh and that for me was also important there's no point wallowing in a corner you, you know you have to get up pick yourself up dust yourself off and get on with it can we just talk briefly as well about the other big thing in your life which is you're a fantastic supporter of the British Heart Foundation you've done a lot of media you talk and inspire other women and last year um, you got one of our Heart Hero Awards, which was very well deserved. Can you very, very briefly explain a bit about your involvement and how important it is to you? God, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, no need to say who got me involved in this, uh, Ruth. Hmm. It was, um, again, from being on the Bells Hearties group, a lovely lady called Ruth Huntsman um, herself <laughs> happened to be on the group as well. And she put out a request one day for... Um, somebody to come forward to have a chat with her about heart failure, um, in particular third stage heart failure, and about the, their story, their journey, heart journey. And um, at the time, I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I'm happy to talk about my uh, my experience. And so I put my hand up and came forward. And uh, next thing is, I was talking to Ruth as I am now, talking to Ruth and relaying my story to her. And then it was out and into the British Heart Foundation. Um, and that was that was fantastic. And from that, I thought, well, that's great. It made me feel good. And um, from that, I've been asked more and more and more to do so much more for the for the Heart Foundation itself. Um, as you say, TV interviews, radio interviews, um, magazine articles, campaigns with Tesco's and all sorts of different things, plus going to different venues and giving talks. Now, I wasn't I wasn't the person that would ever talk in a class. I'd hate having to get up in front of a class of 30 and say what I'd been up to over the weekend. Although you wouldn't think that now, but talking in front of a crowd just wasn't my thing. But I knew that I, as like I say, from my naivety, when I first had my heart attack and was told about heart failure, I knew that I had to somehow try and get the awareness out there, make people more aware of what's, what is heart failure. Lots of people know about cancer and how cancer affects one another, um, you know, and the outcome of cancer. Very few people know, like I say, about heart failure. And so for me, it became really, really important to do whatever I could in whatever means to try and campaign and get the awareness out there. And like I say, I feel privileged to have had the opportunity to work alongside the BHF doing that. Um, and, and like I say, it's just it's just a, 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 a tiny thing that I do. But, you know, if you can make one more person aware of um, what it's like having heart failure and the ins and outs of what comes with heart failure, then that's a win for me. Well, you, you've made a huge impact, Claire, even though you wouldn't admit it. And we are so grateful to have you. Can I just quickly ask you, because you you're one of the few people who's been able to see what BHF research looks like in mm. real terms. Can you explain to me when you went to have a look at a, a, a piece of research that could help you and other heart failure patients in the future? Yeah, again, I'm, I mean, I, again, another time that I was so privileged, I was, I was amazed. And basically what it is, it's the research the Imperial College uh, have been doing, again, funded by the British Heart Foundation, 
buzz into these heart stem cell patches. And these patches literally look nothing more than like a gauze that you'd use in hospital, the, the bandage gauze that you use in hospital. And it's about the size of a little, uh, your, your little finger nail. And these patches, when placed in an incubator with stem cells, heart stem cells on them, they go into an incubator. And after a couple of weeks, these little patches, they start to beat, um, vibrate like a little heartbeat. And it's just absolutely unbelievable to see these little patches on a Petri dish beating like a heart. But these little stem cells that they've managed to, to produce um, can be sewn onto the heart. And it's hoped that in time they will produce new heart cells. Now, I'm not saying that they could make the whole heart beat as a healthy heart, as a healthy heart was prior to a heart attack or somebody being in heart failure. But if it could give somebody in heart failure just 50 percent capacity of their heart to work again it would improve their life um so much more so i mean it, it's just absolutely incredible absolutely incredible and did that give you great personal hope as well claire actually seeing that oh my gosh yeah absolutely and not so much for myself because like i say i have no idea what the criteria is as to who these patches would be available for, how they would be assigned to people. You know, it might be that they're perhaps only going to work with people that are perhaps in stage one and two heart failure. For those that are in three and four, maybe they wouldn't work. I don't know. Like I say, that hasn't been, well, to my knowledge, I, I'm, I'm not aware of that as yet. But it's even if, it, even if it was no good to me, just the fact that they were there and to advance so much in heart uh, research is just amazing because again my my mum I lost my mum when I was 17 and she had heart problems and back then she could have had heart surgery but it was a 50-50 just a 50-50 chance that she'd survive so she opted not to have it but so you look now how we've come on like I say a heart surgery open heart surgery is a, a daily occurrence and to think that the research that's being done thanks to your charities like yourselves and the research at these 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 centres you know, to think that a little tiny patch, like I've just described, could do what what it's what it's going to do is just it, it really does. It blows me away. It really does blows me away. As we come to a close, Claire, can I ask you how your health is now and what the future holds? Because I know you've said to me in the past that you know at some point you may have to have a transplant. That might yeah, be yeah. what what's going to happen. Yeah, well, at the moment, I am very, very stable. I'm probably as stable as I have been in nine years. But like I say, it's taken the best part of those nine years to get there, um, getting all the meds and everything right. So, yes, I'm in, a, I'm in a good place now. But as we all know, that can change within 24 hours. Uh, like you can get a heart attack, you know, one minute you're fine, next minute you can have a heart attack or a cardiac arrest. That still applies. And, you know, I'm, I'm always very aware that things could change one day to the next. And I know that the next part for me is to have what they call an LVAD, which is a left ventricular assist device. And the idea of it is that it actually assists your heart to beat when things get so bad that you're needing a transplant. And so that is probably going to be the next kind of thing that I've got to not look forward to, but next <laughs> next thing on the agenda should things, um, like I say, start to, to worsen. And it will, because like I say, heart failure doesn't improve um, it can be stable, it can be kept stable, but it never gets better. It's only going to it's only going to worsen. And so, like I said, I don't know when, 
but I just keep going and hoping, you know, that I've, I've got quite a bit longer before it happens. But when it does happen, that'll be the next thing. And that's actually plugged into a battery pack, which you have to carry with you 24-7. And then at night, wow. you plug yourself in like you would plug your mobile phone in to charge up. You do the same yeah. at night time. So, I mean, in a nutshell, that's it. But I mean, again, it's it's a complex, um, complex procedure, lots of risks. But again, there's hope. It's it's still, you know, there's still hope that even when you think it's, oh, that's it, I'm in end stage heart failure, you know, there's still hope. There's still much to be done. But yeah, like I say, there's, there's so there's the LVA, uh, LVAD and then there's the heart transplant. So, so yeah, you just have to, you just have to keep hoping. And um, as I say, you can't do anything. I, I just try and live every day now. The most important thing that I've learned from all of this is to live in the here and now today, live for the present day and just make every day count for something. And at the end of the day, just feel that you've done the best that you could have done on that day to to be happy and make other people happy. Wise words, as always. Thank you, Claire, for joining us on Ticker Tapes. You've been amazing. 35,000 women in the UK every year are admitted to hospital following a heart attack. That's an average of four per hour. Women may be less likely to seek medical attention and treatment for a heart attack despite the warning signs, which can drastically reduce chances of survival. So if you think you are experiencing symptoms, please do not delay getting to hospital for treatment. There is plenty of information about women and heart attack on our website, bhf.org.uk. Our helpline, staffed by cardiac nurses, is open Monday to Friday, 9am to 5pm, 0300 330 3311. This has been Ruth Huntman for Ticker Tapes. Thank you for listening.